most people think a crowded field is a bad thing, right? Yep. It just by its own nature, people think that like, oh God, you don't want to get into that field. There's too many other players. There's too many CRMs. There's too many AI companies. Like most people think it's a bad thing. I think that in reality, it can give you more to work with in terms of defining what it is that makes you remarkable. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Belfour, founder and CEO of Reforge and your host today. Today, my co-host, Fareed Mustafat, is off, but we've got two incredible guests with us today. We dive deep on one topic in this episode, just based on all the amazing AI announcements that have been coming out recently. We figured it was interesting to tackle the topic of, if you're a company in the space, how the hell do you break through all of this noise with all of these launches happening every single week? So we got two product marketing experts to join us to talk about this topic. The first, Megan Keeney Anderson. She's the VP of Marketing of Jasper, an AI tool for marketers. She was formerly a VP of Marketing at HubSpot. And we also have Mary Sheehan, who has decades of experience in product marketing between companies like AdRoll, Google, and a few others. She's also a author and program partner helping create one of our product marketing courses here at Reforge. So tons of tips in this episode. But before we dive in, just a quick reminder, go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for the email list, a bunch of exclusive goodies around that, including summaries, exclusive video clips, and a bunch of other stuff. Hope you enjoy the episode. I look towards the next year, just like as a founder, and I feel like I need to go on my own walkabout slash journey of AI to understand it deeply myself, you know, to help the company navigate. I'm interested how you two have been keeping up to date or if you've seen others in your companies, whether the founders or other execs or stuff, like what they've been doing to keep up to date. Because I feel like everybody's in this boat and I'm I'm like staring at it. And every week I'm like, I feel one step farther behind. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, um, following Megan on <laughs> social media. <laughs> okay, what? step one. Yeah, I like that. I honestly, like, I, th I think that you've got to pick an angle, figure out the thing that you want to solve with AI or know the most about in terms of AI and narrow down the aperture mm. a bit so that you're just like finding that subsection because it's a universe. And keeping up with everything is just impossible. Yeah. Actually, this guy, Paul Reiser, who does the Marketing AI Institute, was an old like HubSpot partner. He's done a really nice job of like picking a niche, understanding it thoroughly, still having like room for the outside stuff, but being kind of like first in to understand that particular angle of AI. Mm. Otherwise, we're just What's it, Give me an example of an angle or two. Well, it could be like um, use case based. So it could be AI for developing our... AI for marketing, that's probably the most obvious. Then it could be kind of like about the like an angle of adopting the software, right? Like like what how do enterprises need to think about this versus startups? And there's plenty of like subtopics within AI around like responsible use and ethics. There's a whole field around like the blend of synthetic and non-synthetic content. And there's this there's this like concept that you've probably heard about that called model collapse. Have you heard about that? I don't this? know if I have. This is one of these things that's like outside of my scope and I and I just kind of like came upon it. But they've done all these studies that when you train language models on synthetic content, so like content that was created by AI and not touched by humans, 
after a while, the whole language model just breaks. It's like you're feeding it junk food. And so it like, it starts to break in really like fascinating, weird ways. Like one of the studies that I read, they had like screenshots of like, it doesn't happen in the first training, but in like the second or third, it starts to just like stutter basically. And there was one line that was like, it produced an answer. And then at the end of the answer, it was like started off okay. And then at the end of the answer, it just started saying red, blue, J, yellow, blue, J, orange, blue, J. Just in like a twitch, like I couldn't get out of it. So what they've kind of concluded is that you can't feed AI models synthetic content. You have to feed it human content. And they, and like the next field of study is like, why? Right? Because the content is kind of indiscernible. Right. You look at it with the human eye. But anyway, so, so that in itself is just like a fascinating thing. So now I'm like fascinated with model collapse. And that'll, that's like a new topic that I pursue that's outside of my core, like, how do we use AI to write blog posts? But that stuff just happens as you yeah. as you start to follow. I kind of like the junk food analogy though, right? Like that 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 resonates. Like, wow, I never thought I would be bringing up this topic uh, today. But one of my good friends is like deep in the health space and him and I jam a lot. He's like turned me on to like all these studies. I can't remember exactly like what animal groups, but they basically divide the animal groups into two different groups and they feed one group, you know, like organic foods like normal diet and the other a junk food diet essentially and what the studies show across all these different animal groups is that in the first generation of folks like you know they have some like some ailments and all that kind of stuff in the second generation all of a sudden you you get these like later stage life types of developments like like higher rates of cancer and like all that kind of stuff and in the third generation basically the animal groups become infertile on the junk food ones. And then the challenge is, is that even if you take that third generation and start feeding it a healthy diet, it doesn't reverse. And so the doomsday kind of the the really pessimistic version of all these studies that, that they're all saying is like, where are humans in this, in this kind of evolution? Are we in like stage two headed to stage like three, like all this other, other stuff. But it's kind of similar of like, hey, like if you feed something junk food, it doesn't show up right away. But if, as you go through the second, the third and the fourth generations, there's all these like second, third, fourth order effects that we don't actually mm-hmm. something. So I, I never thought I'd be bringing that up in today's conversation. But like literally your your AI analogy kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, because it's the it's the same thing. And then you start to think about, well, as humans use AI more, if they don't use it well and they just use it it took, oh, you know, churn out a bunch of junk content and put it on the internet. And then we use that, we use the internet to train AI. Like, are we stealing our own laps? Oh, at some Jesus. Point, right? <laughs> um, so, join the sunshine here. Yeah, we would dark real yeah. fast in this conversation. <laughs> so, uh, oh, wow. I but I love, I, like, I, I love that stuff. Like, I like having those conversations early in. I feel like this AI space has been a lot more reflective than other kind of major advancements before and maybe this is me being biased on the inside but like i don't think we ever talked about the risks and downside of social media when it first came about or the risks and downside of search algorithms or anything like that and so there's at least a little bit more probably not enough but like a little bit more discussion today about ai and the messy mix of it mm-hmm. in these stages yeah that's fair it definitely was not the same level of conversation early on the social side of things. 
Well, why don't we transition into our first topic? Uh, turn this from doomsday into maybe something a little bit brighter. But all right. So yesterday, big, big announcement by Google around their new uh, Gemini AI model. There was a lot in this announcement but it unveiled its most powerful AI model. Yet there's been a bunch of tests that show that it performs just as well, if not a little bit better than GPT-4 from OpenAI. And there's a few interesting features about this. It's multimodal. It can understand across different formats, text, images, code, data. One of the most fascinating things I saw was that it can dynamically generate essentially different styles of UI that are a custom fit to the request we talked last week with Nabil Hyatt about how like just like the text only interface can be super limiting in some cases. And the crazy part, the oh shit moment for me was in the demo, it shows like the steps that the model is walking through. And one of the steps is that it writes a PRD for the request. It, I don't know if you saw this, but yeah, it kind of goes through all of this logic. And one of the steps in the model is that it basically writes a PRD for the next step, which generates the UI. And I was like, wow, talk about like hitting the square home for PMs. But like, that's literally what they called it. So there was some really cool stuff around that. But I thought an interesting topic to talk with both of you about today is, is it now feels like there are just like multiple new bombs of AI news coming out every single week. And so whether it's from Google, whether it's from Facebook, whether it's from OpenAI, whether it's from Microsoft, like all of these kinds of kinds of things, so many announcements that like if you were the head of marketing in those scenarios, uh, there's got to be this question of, well, how do I tell this narrative with so many things going on? How do we stand out in the crowd? And how do we kind of like just navigate all of these different you know, like pieces flying at us along the way. So anyways, Megan, I'll, I'll start with you and then we'll get some thoughts from Mary as well. But I'm interested what kind of comes to mind as you look at the Gemini announcement and just kind of see all these things kind of flying around. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is such a unique time in terms of just the velocity of releases, as you're saying, that are coming out. It used to be like you would see a major product announcement like, once a year, maybe once every other year of these from these big companies. You think back to like the Apple days, right? It was like on schedule. It was a big deal. And it was always like a redefining moment for the company. It felt like it stood alone, right? Now we're in this stage of product releases in the AI space where they're so rapid fire and they're coming at you so quickly. And they're, they're sort of call and response to the other releases that are happening from the rest of the field that... You're, you're seeing it not as a singular event, but as a collective, hmm. right? And so I think that the, the question that I then would ask is like, it feels like they're using each of these launches to sort of tell the next chapter of a story and trying to have this sort of consistent narrative that, that defines a little bit about their company and kind of what they stand for, what their unique approach is. That like each of these launches is just another piece of that narrative as opposed to sort of a standalone thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll make that more concrete. When OpenAI came out first with GPT-4, there was a lot of discussion about like, you know, where's Google? Is Google getting beat? Is, you know, what's the, what's their launch going to be? And there became this kind of pattern where it was like call and response, like OpenAI launches, then Google launches, OpenAI launches and Google launches. And so in there, I think each company, both OpenAI and Google, 
which I respect the hell out of both of them, had to figure out how we're going to like present ourselves in this like back to back, right? And so I started to notice that Google, because they weren't first, they had to take a different tack to telling their story. And so they started to become the like, we're thoughtful and we're responsible about these releases and we're taking our time intentionally. It's not that we're behind. It's that we want to make sure that we get this right and that the world is ready for this because we have responsibilities, right? And that meant that OpenAI could kind of position as like the pioneer mm. and Google could position as the steward. Mm. And then the roles kind of get cast and like built. And then you kind of see each launch, whether it's intentional or not, kind of reinforcing those roles and building that identity for each company. Mm. I might be injecting that, but Mary, I would actually like love to hear what you think about this. But it does feel like we're seeing launches as series now as opposed to sort of one-offs and they have to tell that bigger story. Totally. Yeah. I When you mentioned that in our Slack yesterday, I reverse engineered it a little bit and I, I didn't notice that as a consumer per se, but I do see the story now and I think I missed some of their bigger initiatives like AI for everyone. So they have been not just using product releases but also using initiatives and consumer outreach to really tell this nar- narrative of democratizing AI, yeah, being really authentic and trustworthy. So I, I definitely see that. And I also think there's a parallel with what Apple did several years ago around privacy. So I think this was in about 2019 when Apple started with an op-ed by Tim Cook talking about how privacy is so important. And then they started to roll out the features throughout the year. And then their big September launch, they had all of these privacy controls and ask app not to track. So it was kind of this narrative that they really purposefully created through the year. And that's kind of a marketer's dream, right? Is if you can look at your roadmap, think about the themes that you want to have for the year and how you really want the consumer to interpret what you're doing and use not only product launches, which are an incredible stepping stone, but also use anything that you're putting out there in terms of communication to to make that narrative more concrete. So yes, I do think Google has done a good job of that. And then yeah, now when they come out with their updates to Gemini, it doesn't seem so wham bam. It's oh, wow, you've taken us on this journey. And now you are here. So I, I think it's a really solid approach. Yeah. And it also like it signifies a really good relationship with the product org too because you have to be able to rely on them to hit those beats in what they're building. Yes. Um, and it, it should be, it's chicken or the egg, right? But I feel like when that's done well, it's a good sign that that marketing and product are, are working really well together. Sorry. Right. There was some commentary on the web that people felt like this announcement was rushed. Did either of you get that sense? I didn't get the sense. I mean, they did delay it, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think I remember they delayed it. It's like it was like a little bit later than they were in initially anticipating. Again, like they're not the first. Yeah. They're like the yeah. thoughtful. And so it might have felt rushed because I, the other thing that's happening is like launches like this used to be just this massive event for, for these types yeah. of companies, for major, major companies. It was like everything stopped. You tuned into the live stream. There was a ton of commentary after, and there's still a ton of commentary, but it's like, because they're happening so frequently, you can't do that for everything. So it may seem like they're a little bit under the radar because there's just not the capacity to be able to make every single launch like a blockbuster. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is a good point. I was looking just specifically for where, what was the launch moment or what's the one place, one-stop shop for all the messaging. And I couldn't, I couldn't really find that. So yes, maybe it was more using some pieces of the the toolkit. If I were a product marketer working on this and we were close and it was December 6th, I would say, let's try to get this out before the holidays because then it's going to be like another month at least before anyone that's fair yeah i do think it's an interesting point like i don't think counter positioning is the right exact term here but you you mentioned like open ai has kind of taken on this persona of the pioneer i think that's actually a very positive term to call it like call it right um because some people come some people view that as very negative as like they're pushing too hard right? They're taking on too much risk and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's an interesting note that, hey, like, because they're taking on that persona, Google kind of found this this white space to fill, right? With the more like the thoughtful messaging and stuff to try to take advantage of that that second mover advantage. I think there's like a lot of probably companies out there right now facing the same in, in every single category that's being touched by AI. And I think the first wave of all of this messaging for those companies is like AI enabled features, but that feels like that now needs to evolve into a bigger narrative or, or to your point on, you know, the pioneer versus the steward, like they have to start taking on these personas. So like, if you're one of those startups, like in one of those categories, what are you doing to, I don't know, like figure out what that next step of the narrative might be like, where the white space is in your space? Like, how, how, how are you approaching that? I think, so one thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about how we're keeping up with AI is that there's AI that is we're thinking about it in the tech world. And then there's AI for the rest of the world, the consumers. So I think now more than ever, it's really important to understand customer perception and how they're feeling about it and how AI can really be helpful for them and not be scary. So that's sort of, I think, a recommendation for any company right now. Yes, there's definitely um, white space in terms of technology, but making sure that it's a a fit for your customer base and ultimately something that's helpful to them, not just not just AI for AI. I think that's really right on. We get into this echo chamber where we forget that there is a additional explanation that is needed. You can't just like, not everybody's paying as close attention to this. So I think that's a great point, Mary. The other thing is like, we try to look for where are the cracks going to emerge in AI, right? Like a year ago, it was even in like the early, like right when everybody, when, you know, uh, public awareness really ballooned around AI and everybody thought it was amazing and magic, you started to see a little bit of cracks emerging around like, this is really cool, but the outputs are pretty generic. They don't sound like me. You can kind of like, they're they're beautifully written, but like, they're all Yeah, there's novelty, but not substance. It was like, yeah. Correct. So for us, that meant like, all right, cool. We're going to build something to counter that crack because it's not, it's not like widespread yet, but like people are starting to notice it. So then we built what we call brand voice, which is functionality to be able to sort of round outputs in your style guide and your brand and all of that. And that became like a next chapter for us. And then that became you know, more common. And so then it's like, okay, now where are the the cracks emerging? And so like one of the things we noticed in the last six months is like all of these marketers, because we build for marketers, they've all jumped into the pool, but they're really like all kind of stuck in this experimentation phase and they haven't figured out how to like make AI a thing that drives ROI. Mm -hmm. And so 
then our focus was like, all right, cool. We know what that means. That means we need analytics and we need uh, like insights, performance driven insights, right? So we're going to add that next. So we have this pattern of like trying to figure out where is there just like a tinge of dissatisfaction right now that will grow into a bigger need or issue. The other, the other thing here is like to just, we're going to get to a point where AI is just the equivalent of you know, being a digital company, right. like it's not, it's not going to be an AI company anymore. You have to do something other than that. So that's the other guidance is just like, figure out what's the problem yeah. that you're going to solve absent of AI. And well, that's one of my questions as I look forward it. to 2024 is I feel like 2023, I've read a bunch of research on just like you slap AI onto the website or the pricing page and conversion goes up, willingness to pay goes up and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, at some point, it's just going to transition into it's not really a differentiator. It's just like AI equals software company. Do you think that happens in 2024? Like people need to think about evolving their message that much? Or do you think that that advantage lasts like like we actually see higher performance just from slapping on the simple messaging of like this is now ai enabled i'd be curious what you think mary i i think it's going to vary by the field and industry i think some industries will evolve to have ai be like water faster than others frankly like digital marketing and sales tools i think will eventually like evolve where it's just like standard because they were sort of the leading use cases but then there's other use cases that are emerging I think like healthcare and pr- like predictive weather analytics companies and uh, climate tech and things like that, where it might be an advantage for longer, but it's tough to predict anything in this space. My hot take prediction is that 2024, it will still be a differentiator oh. because I don't think that everyone has figured out how to use it. Again, I think we're talking about it a lot in the Valley and in our other tech epicenters, but I do. Your earlier point, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that the the masses are all using it or realizing that they're using it, actually. So I think that as much as companies can make that connection between what's the value that AI is bringing you and here's how we're differentiating through that, I think we still have a runway in 2024. But then after, yeah, I think there's, you know, nine or 12 months where in most sectors, it's going to be, yeah, this is sort of status quo. What's the next thing? How are you? Uh, what's 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 after? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good point. Yeah. Like the majority in the laggards at some point probably could like, they have no response to AI. They don't, they don't, they don't care of something, but it's just not how they think. <laughs> like they're, they're thinking like, is this thing, you know, like producing a better output for me? Is it getting it done better, faster for me? Like all those things and, and finding a way to communicate that. I mean, Megan, you mentioned at the top that most of the time, you know, most companies have these like one big launch announcements per year. I mean, at HubSpot, we had inbound and, yes. you know, that was a big landing moment for us. But it seems like a lot has shifted to, okay, well, like <laughs> that's just too slow for this environment. Now we need multiple of these like types of announcements and drum beats. So I guess as a product marketing leader, given that, how like, how does it adapt? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Does that make the job easier or harder? It makes it harder because it's just nonstop. And to Mary's point earlier, I think we, we it breaks people out of the pattern of like knowing when they're going to hear from you and paying mm-hmm. attention at that moment. And you just because of resources probably can't make as big of a moment if you're spreading them out throughout the year. And it's, it's just work, <laughs> right? It's exhausting. <laughs> I'm going to get to the good side. I think the the good side of it is that 
it allows, it's like anything that's iterative, right? It's going to allow you to evolve that story more quickly and not have to wait till the next year. And I think in marketing, anything that builds momentum is a positive thing. And sometimes if you're waiting a full year until you get that spotlight again, or you have that thing to talk about again, the momentum has died down and you have to build it back up again. So I think there is benefit if you can create that through line to using these as points of proof Mm -hmm. rather than as the end goal of what you're trying to drive attention to. Megan, I think I asked you this question six or nine months ago, and we talked about how your team had gotten really good at rapid launches. So like sometimes you'd have a week's notice, which is insane. I mean, like a minimum that you'd want usually as a product marketer is six weeks, like minimum, minimum. So I think it's if if I'm not mixing up words, but I think that it makes us better at kind of figuring out the things that matter and what we really need. If you have a week, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it. And guess what? Some of the things are going to be cut out of that. Constraints help sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's a sprint. It's like all hands on deck. So I think it can be really fun, but obviously exhausting. And it's like, you're going to fall, fall into bed at the end of that week, but you kind of adapt. Did you just compress all the things that you would usually do in six weeks down into one week? Did you cut major chunks, you know, from your typical process? How did that work? You do lose some stuff that's important, right? It, when you're dropping to a tighter time frame, Mary and I talked about this, like you lose a lot of the, the market research. Mm-hmm. Your research is how they respond once it goes out the door. And then you have, because you're launching so fast, you can iterate based on that response later on. But it's higher risk because you're not taking the time to test the messaging and all of that. So you have to have a really strong gut about this is the right direction. So I think that's a risk. You can you can create content faster now with Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I feel like I, I only have I'm only allowed to say AI so much time on this call. But like it's we we can move faster. So what we do is we'll upload a product positioning brief into Jasper and then we have Jasper spin up the first draft of everything. Mm-hmm. And so you can move more quickly, but there are real trade-offs in that kind of process. And I I actually think the bigger trade-offs come to the product organization because similarly, like if we're launching every six weeks, they've got to launch something every six weeks. We've started to shift where we do like announcements for things that are coming next. So we're divorcing the marketing announcement from the product availability, yeah. which is an import was an important shift. We did that. We ended up doing that at HubSpot as well. Um, cause it just takes a lot of the risk and pressure out of the product organization. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing um, because I remember one of those inbounds when we did the rebrand from sidekick to HubSpot sales, there was a big pressure yeah. to launch it at the exact moment of the presentation and just the, the crazy amount of pressure and launch risk that that created was immense. I remember sitting still in the conference room of wherever we were doing inbound, like, you know, flipping the switch. So, yeah. Yeah. We had one year where we had like a major crit sit during inbound where crit sit being like a product issue and people were up on stage and the product was having a crit sit and it was just, I don't know if that was the same year, but it's just, it's not necessary. And I think it took us a while to realize that. Realize, yeah. Question like, it. Feel yeah. like, yeah. 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 Looks like a lot of companies are are following that, which is they're divorcing those two things. But I think to your earlier question, do you think the trade-off there is that it 
has any negative effect to momentum creation. I think you have to have a certain set of conditions to do it that way. Like you have to have a long sales cycle uh, or at least a sales cycle that kind of covers the delta between when you're announcing and when the product will be readily available because you don't want people to buy something and have the thing that they bought it for not be there. So it works, I think, better inside sales driven teams, teams where there's just like some process before you actually get into using the software. I think if you're like an immediate... Sign consumers yeah consumers are fickle them. like they're like they see that thing they get excited they want to try it out now and if you don't capitalize on that moment it's just like you see this on wait lists for consumer products the decay rate of these wait lists is just so fast that you know you're just like capturing on that moment of intent so yeah you get that email like six months later being like it's ready and you're, <laughs> you're like, like what the fuck is this is. like i don't even remember what i signed up yeah. for yeah 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 yeah, it creates a little bit of an artificial arms race too. There should be like a time limit on it. I have seen companies this year announce things that are going to be available nine months later. And they're just, they're trying to push the envelope. They're trying to be first to market. Yeah. And that is a bad consumer experience. It's, totally. you know, it's, they're not going to remember that product's going to probably change a ton from what that blog post said. So I think as a company needed to define what is a realistic time period that we're comfortable with where we can actually deliver on that and and what's the benefit to launching early is that the first mover benefit so important that we want to actually have a kind of negative experience for the customer so just defining that and, and weighing the, the trade-offs what is it for you mary like what's how would you define like what do you think is a good range in terms of announcement to availability yeah, I think what you said about the sales cycle is so important. So yeah, and on the B2B side, I feel like three months is tolerable, but consumer, well, I think a lot less than that. <laughs> like, yeah. Unless you're having some kind of beta or alpha, people can play around with it, or it's some kind of, you know, special preview that people can see and, and actually watch a video. I think I think that's it's like a month or six weeks, I would say. But yeah, yeah. I think I think you have to be careful. Yeah. With that. Yeah. I would I was gonna I was even gonna say less. I was gonna say like a couple weeks. Unless you're kind of like capturing pre-orders or something like that. What, what you yeah. see with, you know, like humane AI pin and and you're getting commitments that, you know, once I pay then I'm not gonna forget about that. But if it was like a if it was like a consumer social product. I, Mary, you mentioned something interesting, which is there's possibly a discussion or trade-off of what are the benefits of being first to market and the trade-off. Like if you're sitting in that situation, how do you make that decision between like, we're going to be first to market or we're okay being second? Like, wh- like how, how would you think through that scenario? Well, I would think about how big of a deal it is and how much of a differentiated feature or product it really is. If it's if it's totally game changing, if this is, you know, in product marketing language, we talk about tiered launches quite a bit. If it's uh, tier zero, if it's your biggest thing that you think you have coming out in the year, it might make sense to be that first mover and kind of put all your eggs in that basket. If it's tier one, which happens, you know, once a quarter or, you know, you're gonna have several of these a year, I would maybe think about how to just make sure that it's working and not have a bad customer experience in that. So I would, I would look at the size of it, how much of an impact it's, you really think it's going to have. Also just the customer base and what it's solving for them. So it's kind of thinking through those, those different aspects of it is how I would make the decision on it. 
There's great examples out there. Like we were talking about Gemini earlier, not being first to market. Even if you're thinking back to Uber or Airbnb, they weren't first to market in terms of their product. And they were able to learn so much from those customer experiences and adapt to a specific customer segment that I don't think the first mover approach is is the only way to go. You can learn a lot from the market and be able to come up with a slightly different angle or a different customer segment or different branding even and focus on different use cases that can be equally as as valuable or in those cases even even more successful in the long run. The Uber versus Lyft thing is an interesting one because uh, they definitely went through a couple year period of this like back and forth you know product narrative yep. in the similar way that it feels like you know Google and OpenAI and and similar kind of personas personas too like Uber took on the pioneer aggressive type of persona and Lyft took on the friendly persona as well so I hadn't I hadn't thought about that but uh, there, there was definitely that two year period where it felt like each one of them was launching you know something every couple of months so yeah yeah, this is where like roles come in to play a lot with product marketing. So Mary and I actually in the Reforge course, we talk about this idea of like archetypes that you have as a, a company. And there's like four really common ones. One is you're the market leader. So you just, you're dominant, right? Salesforce in a CRM space. Another archetype is you're the challenger brand. So you're the one that's coming for the leader. And all of your positioning is about being in contrast to them and their weak spots. A third is you're like the crowd favorite. So, you know, we're like that market leader, but we're for you. You know, we understand you. It's very like audience-based positioning. Good example is any of the project management tools that were specific to like industries or to a particular role. And then the the fourth one that is not as common, but it's the sort of like category creator of, hey, there's nobody in this field right now because it's a brand new field. And each of them have like strengths and the things that make them the right, the desirable position to be. And each of them have things that make them undesirable, right? Like, it, I actually think it's, it sucks to be the market leader because <laughs> your whole world is just defense at that point. So I actually think that can be the hardest one. Challenger brand is fun because you just get to like throw bones. But then the downside of that is that like your, your whole positioning is built up on what you're not and so on and so forth. Like, so... I, but I think back to the original question on like first mover or not, like I think you can be the second mover, but you can't come to market in the same way that the first mover came to market. You've got to be a different role. And so that's kind of how I would, or the advice I'd dole out on that. I think it's a good point that there, being the market leader has some undesirable, probably it feels like you're on like this treadmill where you're like sprinting and you're just trying not to fall off of it <laughs> like that's what i have and that's what i have in my head i'm interested like if you could continue that thread of what the positive and undesirable traits of the other two are the, the third category i can't remember what the exact words you were like the audio yeah, like yeah like like in the email space um, we saw that right like you know convert kit was like our email marketing for creators right i feel like that definitely yeah. played out in in a mature space as well. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the upside of that is it allows you to really own, you know, an audience in a, in a corner of a market in a way that is easier to do than if you're going after a broader space, right? And you can make all of your marketing about that person or that like persona that you're going after. 
So it's really, it's, it's fun marketing because it's like, hey, we understand you. We're like, it's about them, not the product, right? Which is always the better, more human kind of way to, to market. I think the downside of that is it's inherently like smaller, right? And so that when you're inbound marketing and then you go to add inbound sales, it can make that like next audience tougher if you've done a really good job mm. with the first one. Yeah, Br- Halligan's talked about this as like, they have all these products now, the CRM's at the forefront, but everybody still thinks about them as a marketing automation company. It's like the dominant thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, I just remember a moment when people were like, stop trying to make inbound sales happen. Inbound sales are not gonna happen. <laughs> like, it's not a thing. And then we pivoted, we learned from it. And we had to become like, you didn't take on a new yeah. archetype and like become yeah. more of the market leader, the, the challenger brand and that. Um, and then the final one is a category creator. And I think the, the, you know, the reason everybody loves that is because everyone wants to be like this special snowflake, you know, fresh fallen <laughs> snow. Yeah. Like everybody wants to be like, oh, I'm not, I don't even need to worry about them because I'm making my own category. The downside is it's really fucking hard. You're building the category before you're marketing your product and it can take a decade. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think fewer people are well, fewer categories actually need to be made than there are people who think they're category creators. So many startups I've worked at and almost every interview I've ever had for a head of product marketing role leads with, okay, well, we want to create this new category. <laughs> Here's what it is. It's a slight it's yeah, for what It's the trap. It's the, con- so. it's the product marketing interview trap, you know? Yeah. Like, do you really want to do that? Let's talk why. Yeah. How does, how does this work? Why are there more people who want to create categories that are actually needed? I think that book Play Bigger was had a really big impact on our whole industry. Yeah. And they give a lot of examples on sort of the titans of industry, but and that's really proliferated. I hear that reference still all the time. And that book is at least 10 years old. It's a great book, great examples, but it's it's really hard to rise to the, the level of some of the examples that they give. Yeah. I was also just gonna say that when you do it and you do it successfully, it's incredibly defensible and sticky. It's on your terms. You get to set, you think about like software analysts, you don't have to check their box. You can like, you know, tell them what the boxes should be. You get to build a community that that you then kind of own because you were the steward of that movement. It's tremendous upside for doing it. It's just a lot of people fail along the way because it's too, it's way harder than people think it is. Most people think a crowded field is a bad thing, right? It just by its own nature, people think that like, oh God, you don't want to get into that field. There's too many other players. There's too many CRMs. There's too many AI companies. Like most people think it's a bad thing. I think that in reality, it can give you more to work with in terms of defining what it is that makes you remarkable, right? Like it puts more pressure. We were talking before about like Mm -hmm. constraints are helpful. I think that being able to define yourself in the context of everything else that's around you is actually an easier challenge than defining yourself in absence of that. Because you always define yourself too wide or too milk toast when you don't have- Milk toast, that that's a new term I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. I think yeah. it is a harder exercise to do yeah. when you don't have some, when you don't have like a walls yeah. to basically bounce it off or or compare it to. So that, to- that totally makes sense. I think that like, it's a good sign when everybody's jumping into the pool, right? It, it means that there's like things to be discovered there. There's, there's opportunity there. You just have to execute better than everybody else, which is tough, but 
I'll take that over a field that is yeah nothing's happening. It's just like too much white space. It ends up like ends up being yeah. You just yeah, just ends up being like a completely bad thing. Connecting these four things back to the conversation about AI is like I've seen a lot of early stage startups coming out and and they're like we're the CRM, but you know AI enabled or we're the X. But like, is that an actual valid positioning for an early stage startup? Do you feel like right now is you just like take a category, but you say like this is this is the differentiator? No, (laughs) I don't know. What do you think, Mary? Like, I don't think it's enough. Especially, you know, it's like we're a bookstore, but we're online, you know, like it's, it, it will fade really fast. I do think there's one angle. So I'll say categorically, no, except my, my except point is right now, a lot of companies are retrofitting their products with AI. And I do think that there is, there are problems with that. You know, you're trying to like modify something that was designed in a different way and it's just like conceptually kludgy versus building something that is AI native, AI first. Like actually the Gemini example is a good, they really stress in the Gemini launch that they are multimodal native. Like they didn't build a text-based model and then teach it to do like image and audio. They built it from the start to be that way. And there is a benefit, I think, to not having those old like constraints and to actually build something that is native to the best technology at the time. But I still wouldn't market it that way. Mary, do you think it's viable? Mary, come after me. Yeah, you know, I was going to actually say the opposite. Uh, Great. I do think that there are a lot of industries where this could be really helpful. And now that there are the learnings of, you know, of ChatGPT, of Gemini, of all of these things coming to market, applying it to different verticals and really sharing the benefits of how this is uniquely differentiated, whether it's making things easier for your customers or faster or just, you know, helping their lives in some way, obviously leaning in on the benefits and not necessarily always just saying, hey, AI, AI, AI. But I think that's going to really separate some companies from others this year. And then it's going to become this point where it's sort of a a standard, right? But I, I do think there's going to be some white space this year where we'll see verticalization happen and the companies that are first to market or early to market with AI are going to really win because it it is really beneficial and it is going to be really big for them. So I think I think that if done right, it, it can win for these folks. Yeah. I'm interested in shifting the conversation a little bit to somebody asked me this the other day and my mind kind of like went in a million different directions of how to answer this. But they asked me, what does great marketing look like? How do you know the marketing is great? And the person was essentially trying to ask, like, how do you evaluate what great marketing looks like? I'm interested in your perspectives of of how you look at this, because where I landed on this was very different than where I started. So I don't know, Mary, I'm interested if how you think about this question. Yeah, so it was... It was really fun to think of different examples. And one I've been really coming back to is Johanna. So Johanna is a company that specifically markets to busy working moms. And what they're selling is kind of a package of virtual assistants. So I am the target market for this in this <laughs> yeah. case. Yeah. What so you know, sample of one. But what I think is really effective about their marketing 
is that they've clearly studied the the target market and the consumer. Even their product videos show like, I'm like, are you in my kitchen? It's like baby on the hip. I'm trying to answer an email. And then there's like the to-do list everywhere. So they have a really, they're, they're, all of their marketing really speaks to the challenges that their, their target market faces. And then they easily offer the solution that will help that consumer and it's the promise is really realized in the actual product experience. So a few a few things to unpack there. One is, you know, I think great marketing really speaks to one specific customer segment and is able to show them how their problems are solved. It really illustrates that with everything that they're doing from the brand marketing video to the website to the copy that they're using. And then it actually connects the dots to the product. So you're not, you know, marketing one thing and then getting getting the other. So I think that that's something that I'm really looking for when I'm evaluating great marketing is how how much they're um, leaning into each of these different points. Hmm. I've never heard of this product before, but... <laughs> like, uh, it's not for you. <laughs> possibly my wife, though. So like that, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, she would love yeah. it. Megan? So I'll take like a decidedly kind of B2B slant because I've mainly been in B2B marketing my whole life. It might be different for consumer products, but I think that like if I were to like simplify it all down, I think great marketing is the ability to build your own momentum and then know how to channel it, right? So there are companies that do a great job like building momentum. There's a couple different ways you could do it. You could do it through frequent product launches. You could do it entirely through personality, like cult of personality. I think like Drift and Dave Gerhardt mm-hmm. did that really well with growing that audience. You can do it through thought leadership and like a, a point of view. Frankly, Brian, like I think you did a really nice job with that in the early days of Reforge. But like building this momentum so that people see what's happening and they say like, or they, they sort of see your content or the, the beats that you have and they say like something is happening over there and I need to pay attention to it. And I think that's like step one of really, really great marketing. Wistia, you just had uh, mm-hmm. Savage on the other day. I think they also do a really nice job. There's a sort of like a, it's it's fun. It's something you want to be a part of. It feels engaging to be over there, right? And so the first step is like, how do you build that up and not rely on anybody else, you know, not have to pay for events, not have to pay for massive advertising budgets, but like be able to build your own momentum. And then I think the second part is just like, once you've done that, how do you channel that into actual business? And I think people mess this up, right? Like this is where actually like the the good growth marketing practices come in, knowing, you know, you're not just building an audience for the sake of an audience, you're building the right audience to Mary's point. And you know how to turn that from fandom to a deeper relationship and purchase. If you nail those two things, like I think you're you're sitting pretty. The journey I went on thinking through this question was like, yes, you could like check out the website and the visuals and the copy and like all of that kind of stuff and try to judge judge it that way. But as we know, like part of great marketing is whether or not it's effective, right? And you can't really understand whether or not it's effective by just looking at that. And so the best thing I could come up with was that you look at it and there's like this feeling of an echo chamber meaning like some specific mm-hmm. group of people is like, um, if you, it has this feeling that everybody's talking about it. And mm-hmm. the reason I kind of came up with that, I was like, ah, well, if you create that feeling, then you've probably identified 
your like initial audience really well. You've probably figured out the value prop and language, you know, that resonates with them. Um, you know, you've probably figured out like where they live online and where they like talk to other folks, right? Um, like all of these other pieces that, uh, you know, visuals, all that kind of stuff aside, I was like, oh, like when I, when I've thought about like early stage products who feel like they have great marketing, like all the common response I get is just like, oh, like every, every founder's talking about this, <laughs> like, like so, something like that yeah. or wh- whoever the audience is, because like, if you don't do those things, right, you could have phenomenal assets, but you know, you could spread them all too thin and you, and as a result, like it actually, the, the marketing actually ends up being incredibly you know, ineffective, like, so like too wide and stuff. So I, I'm just interested if like that resonates with both of you or not. Yeah, no, exactly. That's like, it's like, it's people driven too. I mean, I think the piece that you've added to this, Brian, is like, there's, uh, I'm, I'm hesitating to say like influencer because it's not influencer marketing, like in the B2C sense, but it's like figuring out who is it that carries sway and how do you get two, three, four of them to all talk about your company? That's really hard to take away, especially, you know, you know, we sell to enterprises and Mary sells to enterprises. Like they, they're not clicking through <laughs> on ads. They're not even Googling for answers anymore. Like they're asking their friends uh, where they're noticing who their friends and their peers kind of share. And I think that's the next frontier of, of marketing well it's just really hard to yeah. track it and to <laughs> use like a formula for it. Um, so hopefully. Wait, so when you say, sorry, the next frontier of marketing, what do you, what, how do you define the next frontier? I, I'm thinking about like learning how to activate a network of people who are, I get it. <laughs> You're just trying to stay away from it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, like like, like learning how to figure out like who the decision makers are and the influencers are in a particular industry that you're going after and learning how to get to them, win them over and activate them, right? There's there's like a whole methodology that's probably there that I'm not good at yet. But the reason why I think it's going to be more important is just like the last 20 years of marketing was largely built on SEO Mm -hmm. and that's going to change pretty dramatically over the next couple of years. And so- it's not going away, but we're going to need to find other conduits to get people to know about your company, your products. And so we're sort of shifting from keywords to key people, I think. And like knowing who those people, identifying who those people are and being able to leverage them is going to be a strategy that I, I know I feel like is, is the next stage yeah. to figure out. This kind of hits on one of the questions I wanted to ask you all before about one thing you're thinking about in marketing or keeping your eye on in 2024. And this hits on something that I've been thinking about for honestly a few years now. And I just have never been able to put all the pieces together, which is this total shift of people follow people. They don't follow companies anymore. So like early HubSpot days, like you're right, like built the content, you all built the content marketing machine, the SEO machine. People would subscribe to the HubSpot blog, the company, you know, email list blog. They would trust it. They'd build a relationship with it and all that kind of stuff. And, I just don't see that anymore. And you see this all over the place, right? The shift to Substack and subscribing to personal newsletters, the algos all over the place don't really reward you, you know, they, they, they won't reward when you publish to the company page people, but they do from like the individual pages. And then, yeah, like SEO is like full of oftentimes half-baked pieces of content put out by, you know, a lot of like SaaS content marketers. 
And so obviously D2C, in the D2C space, they dealt with this with influencers on all the social channels, and that's kind of a major method. But I just wonder how this affects other categories of companies. Like, I don't know if I've really seen a SaaS company, for example, you know, figure out the equivalent to, you know, a large scale influencer campaign. Maybe you all have examples, but I just like personally haven't seen it. And so I'm I'm interested to see if is there a new playbook that's going to be written around this stuff in in those categories or not. And I think the most simple of this is like I did this at one point. I took a blog post and I took like a piece of content and I sent it to something like 10,000 subscribers on from the Reforge email and then a different 10,000 subscribers on from my personal list. And same exact piece of content, <laughs> just like coming from two different places. Yeah. And the one on my personal list performed way better, like way better. That's like the test. I feel like you could take any piece of marketing asset and you, if you, if you could run a test like that, it's always going to perform better coming from an individual. And so have you seen examples of companies going to this or would either of you, if you were an early stage startup, take a bet on SEO as a core part of your marketing strategy at this point in the ecosystem? That's a big one. Mary, I'll let you start. Yeah. There, yeah. There's a lot to unpack that. Yeah. I've, I've done those tests with a personal versus the company before. Oh, you have. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, always, always yeah. wins. Yeah. It's like Tina from XYZ company versus, you know, big company name. So I think that always plays out. Yeah. I, there's a lot to unpack there. I think that SEO you know, all, always kind of a foundational piece of marketing, but I think it's, uh, you want to put less eggs in that basket. I think, you know, on the consumer side, thinking a lot more about TikTok, where I've seen a lot of studies where a lot of search traffic is actually switching to there. I don't know if that's resonating as much from um, the B2B side yet, but certainly on LinkedIn, I think a lot of people now are using that to search and find resources. They're listening to different people that are talking about all different types of topics from AI to marketing. And so leaning in on those kinds of different channels, I think is going to be it's going to be an important part of the mix. I want to throw SEO out yet though. <laughs> yeah. And well, even SEO is going to become more like person-based, mm-hmm. right? So Google introduced their concept of perspectives, which is it brings in forum posts and TikTok videos and YouTube videos that have sort of user-generated content around a given search topic. So they kind of introduced it last year as like a self-counter to the AI results, not necessarily always being reliable. So they're introducing AI and then they're going to kind of like bolster that with human-generated content to give you the full spectrum, right? So maybe SEO is just like in the future, it's just changing, right? And part of SEO becomes finding those, you know, individuals to create content and attest to your company, you know, in the right places that will then get surfaced in search. But it's going to be radically different. It's not a click-through game anymore. It's a influence game. So I think like it's just going to have to change a lot. And to your point, Brian, like I definitely think people are becoming, it's ironic because we're all like scared of the machines and and the, the robots and AI, but like in an age of AI, people are going to become more important because there's a trustworthiness there, there's expertise that's developed there that's reliable. And so I do think that putting some thought into who in your company are you going to try to elevate across these sites to be, you know, a thought leader for you is is well worth it. 
I don't know, you know, what I would invest in if I were starting from scratch today. I do think that like having a clear editorial and like thought leadership strategy is really, really important right now. Yeah. The last startup I was at, we spent a lot of time training every employee from the BDR to the CEO on how to tell great stories in general and how to kind of develop your own personal brand and not just, hey, let's spin out these talking points about the company, but really how to be able to go on stage and speak about any topic or have any conversation with any customer or just really be someone that, you know, is able to authentically share your point of view. And I always thought that that was such an interesting approach. It was a B2B company. And I still kind of look back on our our PDFs from telling great stories and how to do that arc. And I, I could see more companies investing in that to just have their employees be advocates, but in an authentic way, like you were saying, Megan, you know, not just throwing things into chat GPT and spitting out whatever they want to say, but actually having a really clear, articulate point that they want to be able to share about their experiences. So I could see that improving as well. Can I ask you guys a question related to that? (laughs) So let's say you had two candidates for a marketing role. One was, had great, great marketing acumen, great marketing skill, the other I was like, good, but had a massive reputation and following online. How do you make that call? Like, would you go with the more influential marketer with the good skills or the great marketer with absolutely no following? Like, are you buying audience that way? I th- I, you know, my response to that question is a little bit different, which is, is the good marketer's follower or following base actually a sign that they're a great marketer? <laughs> like, like, the, like to me, I look at there. There's a like data oriented evidence now. That might not always be true, right? Yeah. So, so anyways, yeah. like that was actually my first question, but that's not what you're asking. So let me let me think about what you are no, asking. Oh, it is. Oh, it's it's where the skill set is, right? So I do think that that's a totally fair answer. Of like, yeah, maybe they're not as strong on the technical marketing side, but they're clearly a good marketer in these ways because they built this audience mm-hmm. and momentum or what have you. I don't think I would think about it as in that way, like, oh, they must be a better marketer. But it's it's hard to separate from the halo effect once you see that. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's like having 10,000 or 100,000 reference points that, oh, wow, this person must be amazing. And I think you would subconsciously elevate them in your mind. So the question that's also coming to mind here is that I think at least in other functions, like product, engineering, you know, design, other things, is that the people who have the largest followings in those categories, that does not translate to them being the best product people, the best engineers, the best folks inside a company. And so I'm trying to think about that in the marketing case, whether that is also true or 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 not. But I do often find like, I, yeah, just the largest creators and the largest followings are, are not the people who are the best at that function inside the actual environment. They're just good at something else. Like they're good at something else. Like I'm not, I'm not sorry. I'm not throwing <laughs> throwing a bunch of shade on those folks. But and the reason it makes me question that is just I kind of had this principle when hiring is like inspect the work, not the person. I think too many interview processes are are focused on these like very questions that are very subjective to bias that are that are like trying to inspect the person and like how they respond to it live and like all that kind of stuff. And I would just much rather in a process 
like have them show me their work and stuff that they've created in the past and and ask a bunch of questions about it. And so this is a form of that. It's just in public. And I can go inspect that and ask questions of like, how you built this following? How did you think about X? How did you think about Y? How did you think about Z? I think the challenge though right now is that people who have the capabilities to build large followings don't want to work for companies because there's so many other monetization avenues and the creators are such a hot sure. thing. Yeah. It's like, imp- it's a, you know, it's, it's incredibly hard and impossible to hire those folks. So that's the other thing that comes to mind, kind of, kind of thinking through that question. All right, everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to get deeper insights from both Megan and Mary, check out the Reforge product marketing course. Those two put tons of hours into boiling down their decades of experience into that course. You can also check out the other courses within our marketplace around growth, product, and marketing. We just launched a whole host of new ones with winter sessions starting pretty soon. So check those out. Don't forget to go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for the email list, a ton of exclusive goodies, including new episode announcements for subscribers only. 